You are listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. As we heard, six people were taken to the hospital following a helicopter crash in Kau on Hawaii Island yesterday. The incident involving Paradise Helicopters has advocates for safer skies, calling on the governor to sign legislation that lawmakers say will help tighten regulations on tour operators. State Senator Chris Lee is head of the Transportation Committee, and while previous regulatory attempts have fallen short or run afoul of federal laws, he believes the bill before Governor David Ige will help protect the public. There's been over 20 fatalities in recent years, and there hasn't been any significant or meaningful change on the part of how helicopter companies are regulated, how safety is ensured, how a lot of the questions that have been asked over the years ought to be answered. And that's something that means there's probably going to be more helicopter crashes unless something is done. Well, what does the legislation do that would help with this? So we had talked with some stakeholders in the industry. We had folks from within the companies, uh, whistleblowers, reach out over the last two years. And so we put together legislation this year that has passed the legislature, is now sitting on the governor's desk awaiting signature. And it does two things. Number one, it collects data from all the helicopter companies so that they're forced to report when they're flying, how many people they're taking up, where they're going, are they deviating from their prescribed routes for whatever reason, and just basic accountability information so that when you do have incidents like this, we have records that the state can collect and analyze. And it's just so surprising that none of this basic information has been collected before. The second thing the bill does is put together a working group of stakeholders, including the Department of Transportation and community representatives from the various affected communities, the FAA, National Transportation Safety Board, and others, to look at the data and figure out what's working and what's not, and make recommendations not only to the companies for how to change, but also to the FAA and other regulators to make sure that those changes are implemented. And we actually do have safer skies, safer tours, and ultimately quieter communities. Well, I guess it might surprise people that these reports and this data isn't already available. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of folks that we hear from all the time, especially, you know, there was a crash in Kailua uh, just a couple of years ago, and everyone reached out saying, you know, how could this happen? You know, where's the, where's the data that, that shows what ought to have been happening and what restrictions should have been in place? And none of that is collected by the state. The FAA, as a federal agency, has almost entirely exclusive jurisdiction over anything in the air. So that includes regulating safety, regulating noise, flight hours, routes, all that sort of thing. And so the state up until now, all the legislation that's been tried to have been passed over the last you know, five, 10 years has always run into that roadblock that the FAA's authority is the sole authority and asserts the states. So it took a long time to figure out how to do it. And this year, the bill that we passed is the first one that's passed in such a long time because we figured out how to collect data in a way that meets federal law and then also figure out how to make sure those recommendations and those changes are implemented without violating federal law. So it is a big step forward. Is the data that the state is trying to get access to, does it already exist or are you asking for a, a more detail, let's say, prior to a chopper taking off? You know, the data already exists. We know that companies, their, their flight paths are tracked and they have flight plans they have to file and so forth, but not all companies have been willing to actually share that. Some have been great. You know, they've been pretty transparent and open. Other companies have been completely black box, don't want to share anything. And that's frustrating because, you know, we've heard from some of the employees at some companies saying they're being asked to fly in potentially unsafe conditions or with folks who probably shouldn't be up there. So there's a lot of that kind of question that comes into play. And without data, without being able to know who's flying where and when and how many people, it's hard to make any sort of assessment. So that's why this is a first big step that will help shed some light on what's really going on out there. What do the numbers really look like? Then what action should therefore be taken? So the collection or the access to data is first, uh, but explain how that data will help the state uh, with this regulation of these operators. Well, you know, up until now, we've had... um, numerous requests to the FAA and other federal regulators over the years asking for things like changing flight patterns when they're, when helicopters are flying low over communities or uh, making safety changes that would prevent the kinds of crashes when there's something obviously awry, when there's maintenance that should have been done. And it's been really difficult because the FAA 
hears a lot of this, but you know, we can't force them to do anything. They have to act based on some justification. And so without data, I think it's hard for our arguments coming out of our communities within the state to have meaningful effect. And so we've been working actually with Congressman Ed Case and some of our other uh, friends at the federal level who now with data think that you know, there's going to be a lot better chance that we'll be able to justify um, making some sort of change. And the FAA and other regulators will be able to actually do something with that and say, here's the justification we have, so therefore we can now um, ask for different hours or flight patterns or safety regulations, maintenance, training, that sort of thing. What is the big stick that the state then would have? if this legislation passes? Well, we can't control what's happening in the air. Uh, we do lease a lot of properties to helicopter companies and other tour companies that are operating on the ground where they're flying from. And those are state permits. We also have regular state business licenses and other things that they've got to file as businesses. And in pretty much any other sector, when you have companies, in some cases, cutting corners, and that leads to injury or fatality, the state is quick to step in. But in this case, it's been very difficult because of that divide between the FAA's jurisdiction and the state. So there is a hammer, and the state could come in if people aren't cooperating or complying, and there continues to be um, clearly dangerous operations that endanger people's lives and potentially change those leases, revoke them, change the permitting, um, do all sorts of stuff that ultimately would probably shut those businesses down. And, you know, that's a heavy hammer because there's a lot of employees, those businesses, and not all of them are, um, I think, trying to cut corners. But from what we're hearing, clearly there are some. And clearly the record and the reality is that people keep dying or being injured. And that's something that we just cannot tolerate. That was State Senator Chris Lee, chair of the Senate Transportation Committee, talking to us about legislation that he hopes the governor will sign into law. He says the bill will help with safer skies. On Wednesday, a tour helicopter crashed in Kau. Six people are said to be hospitalized. Federal investigators are just beginning their probe into what caused the collision. is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Today, we're taking a trip to the grounds of our nation's capital in search of Hawaii historical figures in 3D. From 1807 to 1857, the House of Representatives convened in the old Hall of the House. It was an acoustically challenged chamber prone to echoes. In 1850, frustrated representatives began the capital expansion project to build a new House wing. Lawmakers were quite happy to be rid of the echo-riddled hall, but it raised questions of what to do with it. The Greek Bible architecture made the hall a place to be seen, but not heard. Congressman Governor Kemble, yes, his first name was Governor, suggested that the vacant chamber become an art gallery. Representative Justin Morrill went a little further, proposed a statuary hall. In 1864, Congress passed an act allowing each state to contribute two statues of prominent state residents for the newly established National Statuary Hall. For today's Backyard Quiz, which two Hawaii figures were sent to Washington? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Newid Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to providing workforce housing for growing families, such as the Kauai Housing Development Corporation. NewidHawaii.com. Check today is with Honolulu Civil Beat editor Chad Blair. He has a story about a multi-million dollar, dollar settlement that affects current and former inmates across the state. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So the story, uh, 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 Kevin... Um, Kevin Dayton. Kevin Dayton. He, he uh, <laughs> came across this lawsuit. Yeah, he did. And, and Kevin, he does a lot for us, including covering prisons and jails. Uh, he can't be with uh, us today because he's covering rail, the heart meeting today. But a uh, very interesting story. The name of the company is Global Tell Link, uh, GTL for short. And what it does is it, it provides paper-minute phone service uh, to Hawaii prisoners uh, and families, as you indicated. It's been doing that since 2017, the state Department of Public Safety has a contract with them since 2017, and this company, GTL, actually has contracts uh, in all 50 states. It serves about 2,300 correctional facilities in total. The problem here is that, uh, according to Kevin's story, um, the company uh, problem, but as well as solution, has agreed to pay up to $67 million to settle this lawsuit. Why was there a lawsuit? Well, the allegation in the, the lawsuit, the filing, says that GTL was improperly draining money from some of these customer accounts. In other words, other words, inmates and families are paying for this uh, pay service, phone service in advance, and yet money mysteriously disappearing from these customer accounts. I mean, $67 million, that's a lot of minutes. <laughs> It is, and we're not quite sure uh, exactly how it's going to work out. One of the reasons Kevin wrote the story today is because if if you, and I'm I'm talking to anybody out there listening here on HBR too, um, if if you have loved ones, um, um, if you're actually incarcerated and you believe that your money might have been taken away, you can actually file a claim. You can do it online on Federal District Court. If you go to Kevin's story, you'll, you'll find a link. To do all that, the company, by the way, this lawsuit was filed in Georgia, but the name is GTL. And so the idea is to figure out how much you know, money could go. Of course, they have to make sure that your claim is, is correct. By the way, this is not the first time that GTL has been involved in litigation. Uh, there was a settlement with uh, New Jersey not long ago for about $25 million. And uh, there's a, a kind of a, a short... Uh time under which uh, people can file a claim, right? Yeah, they have to. So Tuesday's a deadline uh, to get in there. There is a court hearing that's coming up in August. Basically what GTL did, the allegations that are in the lawsuit, remember this is coming from a settlement, but what the allegations say was that for 10 years, from April 2011 to October 2021, more than 10 years, what GTL had was what's known as an inactive policy, inactive policy. So that allowed it to keep any of that money that was deposited into these systems. Basically, it would be an advance payment for making these phone calls, kind of like a phone card, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But here is the catch. If you didn't use that money within 180 days or less, well, it, it could be taken away. And, and that's how this settlement came about. It alleges that GTL actually violated that contract to help these inmates and their families. Uh, the lawsuit says that the policy of draining this money, here's the words that are used in the lawsuit, it was, uh, the company was unjustly enriched uh, by this practice. Well, I, I just worry because Tuesday's, you know, Right around the corner, we've got the holiday tomorrow, uh, the weekend, mm. and then Monday and Tuesday, and, and that doesn't give uh, these inmates or their families much time. And I don't know if they have to contact their previous attorneys or just go online and, and uh, get their name in the queue. From my read of Kevin's story, and there is a link, it is done online, and, and by the way, not everybody has tomorrow off. <laughs> I wish we <laughs> okay. did, but we don't. Here, here at Civil Beat, we're working the holiday tomorrow. Um, I should tell you, though, GTL actually denies any wrongdoing or any liability, but this is a settlement. The court wasn't deciding who was right or wrong. But yeah, in, in, in terms of that urgency, um, there is a link if you want to go on the story. It's featured 
uh, on our site today. I should add, there's a, another element that's kind of interesting. Uh, by the way, if, if you are entitled to the settlement, you're going to get a credit or a refund. But I should tell you this, uh, DPS actually gets a cut. They get $200,000 commission from this uh, system, and it pays for victim notification when someone's mm. going up for parole or they're being released. Uh, so that $200,000 uh, commission is used to fund what's known as an inmate locator. So there is an interest also in the state. It has no plans to cancel this contract with GTL. That's going to continue. Okay. All right. But if there are folks out there that think they might have money in that account or might have put money in an account like that, they should definitely uh, check this out because Tuesday's a deadline. Thanks so much, Chad. You're welcome, Catherine. Thank you. All right. We've been talking to editor Chad Blair about a story written by Kevin Dayton. Uh, It's about how current and former inmates may be in line for a part of a multi-million dollar settlement, but they have to act fast. Read the full story. Visit sylvie.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Beach Tree Restaurant on the oceanfront at Four Seasons Resort, Hualalai, serving lunch and dinner, featuring local catch of the day, house-made pasta, and weekly paella night. Advocates of electric vehicles say they are far better for the environment long-term. Opponents say we're not there yet, and that modern internal combustion engines are much cleaner than gas guzzlers of the past. This is a paradigm shift for everyone. Do electric vehicle subsidies make policy sense? Or is the green promise of Tesla and other car makers just marketing? That's next time on Intelligence Squared US. Beginning tomorrow morning at 11. Masks, a potent symbol of the pandemic. Over the past two years, these public health tools have become a kind of shorthand for our values. Without mask mandates in place, we must each determine our own relationship to masking and how best it serves us, sometimes in unexpected ways. Maui listener Sky Kahoali'i wrote to talk back to share this perspective. As someone who expresses as mahuwahine, masks have been a definite benefit to my incomplete transition, as it has been much easier to prepare for being in public. It hasn't been necessary to make up the portion of my face covered by a mask, which happens to be where one of my dysphoria-inducing characteristics is, namely my beard shadow. Masks have also helped immeasurably now that I'm undergoing electrolysis for removal of my facial hair since I must grow it out enough to be located and eliminated with the probe. I'm able to walk to the office of my electrolysis therapist and my mask helps relieve my dysphoria at having to be in public with such an obvious masculine trait. We followed up with Sky to learn more. I'm 66 years old. Uh, I graduated from Kamehameha a long time ago. (laughs) And I am a late transitioning uh, trans woman in that uh, I didn't start until I was 61. So masks were of a large boon to me because uh, I could just do my eyes as I have today, put on a mask and I made sure that I got very colorful ones, ones that had butterflies and and cat faces and lace and anything except light blue or black. And I wore those because not only do they help me participate in the community by uh, keeping the community safe, but they made me feel pretty because I'm, I'm wearing something that I think enhances my look. And I had enough different styles that I could actually match them to my clothing. Uh, it's it's probably very noticeable that I have very hot pink top on today. And, you know, I made sure that I bought designs of masks that would match with this color as well as other more of uh, my more uh, subtle get-ups. <laughs> I feel that rather than hiding who I am, that it makes me more involved with expressing things with my eyes. Because you, you only have the upper portion of your face in order to communicate with people. And smiling with your eyes or expressing other emotions with your eyes becomes much more important when the bottom half of your face is covered. And people cannot see whether you're smiling or frowning or, or any of the other 
facial expressions that people normally associate with social interaction. I, I really do like having to, you know, having my preparation time to go out cut by prodigious amounts of time. Normally, I don't even put on the mascara and the eyeliner I have on today. Normally, I just do my brows. I put on my mask and go. It takes five minutes. If I put on a full face in contrast, it can take me up to an hour. <laughs> and I'm basically a lazy person. <laughs> and I would rather do the five minutes any day than, than have to do the hour. And I think I also noted in my email that I am finally going under, undergoing um, facial hair removal, which will you know, help me in that when I decide, if ever, to go out in public without a mask, you know, as long as there's a health risk, that I won't feel quite so dysphoric because I'll know that I'm not displaying that, you know, one really observable masculine trait that, that triggers, you know, the, the bit of dysphoria that I have. I don't have that much because, again, as I said, I consider myself my gender. So brother is always hanging around in the background, you know, for me. But being that I am trying to express as feminine now, you know, I, I'm kind of wanting to go as much all in as possible. You know, I can't really say that I want the pandemic to be ongoing because it gives me a built-in excuse to wear my mask. I may discard my mask at some point in the future, but if it has become normalized that people start wearing them even when there's not a health risk factor involved, that yeah, I'll, I'll keep I'll keep putting them on. I like I like wearing pretty masks. You know, it's a, it is a form of expression that. You know, say like, unlike a tattoo, you can actually take off and change when you want to. And that was Maui listener Sky Kaoli'i, who wrote to talk back about masking. How has your relationship with masks changed over the course of the pandemic? Share your thoughts on our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, offering resources to Hawaii's educators, including the workshop Teaching for Artistic Behaviors, open to the community, honolulumuseum.org slash educators. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Shelley Tegelski, author of Sit Down to Rise Up. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about connecting the inner work to the tangible change in the outer world. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Many notable athletes have come from Hawaii. Names like Duke Hanumoku, Akebono, and Michelle Wee come to mind. Now add to that list, Carissa Chun. She was inducted into the National Wrestling Hall of Fame this week. Among her accomplishments, she was one of our state's first girls wrestling state champions in 1998, and she won the bronze medal at the London Olympics in 2012. Last November, she was named head coach of the University of Iowa's women's wrestling team, the first for a school in an NCAA Power Five conference. The Conversations' Russell Subiono caught up with Chun earlier this week as she was driving to her home in Iowa City. Quick half shot by Martinez, countered nicely by Chun for a one-point takedown. Crawling up with the leg trapped. Going to drive it over, trapped arm, gut for two. Now 3-0. Over for two more. 5-0. One more will do it. Chun driving to her right. Over she goes. There's two. That'll do it. Chun wins, makes it to the finals, but more importantly, the U.S. It's going to go to London at 48 kilos. Clarissa Chun does the job. When you first started wrestling, did you have any idea that you would be this good at it? <laughs> no. 
Honestly, when I first started wrestling, I didn't know there was freestyle wrestling or wrestling beyond high school. So I didn't see my future in wrestling when I started wrestling. The progression from judo to wrestling, was that sort of just like a natural move for you? Or did somebody have to kind of prompt you to check into wrestling? I felt like it being a combat sport like judo, it felt very natural Like as far as progression into wrestling. I probably relied on my judo a lot more when I started wrestling than I did when I started going to college and wrestling. I started developing some more wrestling skills along the way through my time in the sport. And at the time that you started, I believe that it was the first year was recognized by the State Athletic Association. How was it received by the boys wrestling? Were you treated any different or were you supported by the boys wrestling team? Yeah, definitely supported by the boys wrestling team. Wrestling coach as well really treated me just really as a wrestler rather than a girl wrestler. If anything, they probably joked around with me that I would beat them up. (laughs) <laughs> as far as wrestling wise yeah no they didn't look at like girls wrestling lesser than themselves on the boys wrestling team and I feel like maybe across the board I don't want to speak for everyone in the state of Hawaii of girls wrestling but I felt like there was support since it got sanctioned since they won as far as it's sanctioning that the boys never really treated the girls any different or less than so Super grateful for that. No one tried to push me away or try to get me to quit or never gave me the opportunity to compete and train. That's good to hear. We hear all kinds of stories and we see TV shows and movies about the kinds of obstacles that female athletes and typically male-dominated sports have to go through to be able to compete or achieve success. In Mm -hmm. 2018, you were inducted into the Hawaii Sports Hall of Fame. Earlier this week, you were named to the National Wrestling Hall of Fame Class of 2022. What does it mean to you to be memorialized in this way? Oh, man. You know, I think I've always wanted more just as a person and competitor of myself. You know, I never looked at myself as someone who was even close to deserving of such honor, you know, because there was, in my eyes, always more to accomplish, more to do, and I guess I just never, or whenever I thought back and thought about my career, I never thought about the achievement of that status of being, you know, Hall of Fame status, so to speak. I just continued on and persevered through the sport because I loved it and enjoyed it. And reflecting back now, it's really special. And I feel very humbled and honored that I am amongst a lot of great athletes that I've looked up to in my career and my life. It really is an opportunity for me to say, you know, thank you to everyone who is part of that journey. It's weird still, like, just because I never think of myself in that way, but very honored and humbled by it. And you mentioned earlier that wrestling is something that you love and enjoy very much. What is it about the sport that draws you to it? Is it, can you talk a little bit about what you love about wrestling so much? I mean, I love the challenge of the sport. The sport is really challenging. It's not easy, but it's fun at the same time. It's a, a way to be able to create and be creative. And, you know, there's not always one way of doing things. It just translate a lot into life skills of how you're going to pick yourself up and move forward and be resilient. And there's this side where you can get really gritty and compete and not get in trouble for trying to take people down and whatnot. I mean, like I'm not hitting people in the face or anything like that, but you know, I, I love it because it's just so pure, right? Like a pure form of like when I think of martial arts, when I think of judo, when I think of creating something and that's fun. Right. So I feel like it's such a pure sport, right? It's not anything that way you can blame someone along the way as you're doing it. It's you yourself out there and, you're the only person to keep yourself accountable when you're out there in the middle of the mat. Yeah, it's a, it's a very pure sport. It's your it's your mind and your body, and and that's it, right? It's it's mind versus mind, body versus body. It's it's very pure in the sense of sport and competition. And I know that you're mm-hmm. a very highly decorated wrestler. You've won several medals or finished in first place at several tournaments around the world. You were our state's first girls wrestling state champion. You won a bronze medal at the 2012 Olympics. 
Is there a particular accomplishment that means the most to you? Oh, man. You know, it's so hard to, like, say one means more than the other mm-hmm. along my journey because they're all great experiences and lessons that I learn from or grow from along the way, wins and losses, right? It's easy for me to say that there's maybe a match that sticks with me on either end, right? Whether a success that put me on the Olympic team for the first time or a loss in the semifinals at the Olympics, you know, that hurt so bad kind of thing, you know? I think throughout my journey in wrestling, I feel that that makes me a better coach moving forward, you know, and being able to help the student athletes that I'll be working with because I've experienced both ends of that, right? And a leg attack there from Alani, but uh, then the counter comes from Chun, who drives in going for the leg takedown. Has one hand still on the leg. And now Mulaney gets to the back. No, it's a throw. It's a brilliant throw from Chun. Chun, and now she's got her in the arm lock. Three points scoring to Clarissa Chun, who has already won the first period. This is the bronze medal match. And all of a sudden, the American, with 28 seconds remaining, is in prime position. Malini of the Ukraine in the blue is in trouble. The American is on her way to the gold medal. Should say to the bronze medal, she's got it. To the bronze, she's got it. Chun. Chun's got the bronze. Switching gears just a little bit. You've competed at the high school level. You competed in college. Now you're a coach at the University of Iowa. As we look ahead to the 50th anniversary of Title IX coming up later this mm-hmm. month, what improvements have you seen when it comes to the equal treatment of female athletes at schools and universities? Oh, yeah. You know, at the time, I, as Hawaii sanctioned girls wrestling in 97, 98 season, at the time, I wasn't really in full understanding of what that really meant for the broader spectrum of the sport for girls. And then looking back 20-something years ago now, 25 years ago now, it's come a long ways. I've seen the sport, girls, women's wrestling grow across the country, and it's still not there yet. You know, there's still a dozen or so states that haven't sanctioned girls wrestling in the U.S. But I will say people are watching, people are paying attention, and people are being more mindful about it. You know, like we're talking about at the universities, being at the University of Iowa, they are mindful about equity for women in athletics. The University of Iowa is building a brand new facility for wrestling. And that's a question I always get. Is your team going to be a part of that new facility? And the answer is yes, because they want it equitable among the men and the women, right? Like the opportunities are equal. We have equal amount of scholarships. We have equal amount of opportunities to have women come and wrestle at the University of Iowa. And I can't speak for every program, but I feel that people are mindful about that as far as offering equal and equitable opportunities for young girls across the country here. And I'm super grateful for it because it's given me so much opportunity to continue wrestling and get an education. Had that not been around, I don't know where I would be today. You know, I don't know what opportunities would have been there for me to be able to pursue an education and athletic career, especially in wrestling. Speaking of being named head coach of the Iowa Hawkeyes women's wrestling program, what do you hope? to take from your Hall of Fame career and pass on to your team, to the next generation of women wrestlers? Oh, to go after it and whatever they want to achieve for themselves in their lives, whether it's on or off the mat, just keep pursuing to be the best they can at it. That's the drive, right? That's the everyday why we do what we do. So at least for me, it was, I loved it. I wanted to do it was something that I wanted to achieve, work towards, and put all my full efforts into. And that's what I would want for anyone that I work with, whether they're on the team wrestling for University of Iowa or not. There's some athletes that I've worked with that I still stay in touch with. It's like, how can I 
best help you along your journey? How can I connect you with whoever you need to be connected with to be your best self? I think that's what's fun about this part of the journey of the life as far as being a coach is how can I best serve you? Sounds like it's not just about wins on the mat or bringing a national title home to Iowa, but it also sounds like having an impact in the lives of uh, the women on your team. Yeah. You know, and the University of Iowa's model is win, graduate, and do it right. And that's exactly what I want for them, too. You know, I'm competitive. (laughs) So, but I don't want to put all the pressure on them saying you have to win, right? So that's the goal. That's the vision that when they're coming to Iowa, they have those expectations on themselves that they want to achieve greatness, too. But, yeah, it's more about the person than and what they can produce. And along that, they discover themselves just in the pursuit of that. I think that's what was so valuable about rest for me was I learned so much about myself in my journey. That's so awesome to hear. I believe that's a hallmark of a great coach is not just the sport, but having an impact on the life as well. And speaking of, I know that your family has roots in Kauai. And I just read that you'll be conducting a wrestling clinic on Kauai this Friday. Can you share those yeah. details? Yeah, I know. Coach Max was like, hey, do you know anyone that would like to come to Kauai to do a clinic? And I was like, well, I plan on going home after the Hall of Fame. And I think he originally was going to have it on a different week. But he like moved it around so that way I can be there. And, you know, Kauai has a special place in my heart. That's where my mom's from. And any chance I can give back in any capacity, I I love that. You know, like I want to build interest in the state of Hawaii. I want to nourish that piece of that because it means so much to me. And I look forward to seeing young kids come out of Hawaii, whichever island they're coming out of, to represent the 808 because I got a lot of pride for that. And... <laughs> So it's special. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed talking to you. Oh, yeah. Thank you. That was Hall of Fame wrestler and Olympic medalist Clarissa Chun talking with HPR's Russell Subiano. Chun will be leading a wrestling clinic on Kauai at 10 a.m. tomorrow at the Clem Gomes Gym on the uh, Waimea High School campus. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Carlos Amfroy, M.D., ophthalmologist and eye surgeon, specializing in laser vision correction, cataracts, and diabetic retinopathy. If you've got fresh ideas on how HPR can serve our islands, consider applying to join our Community Advisory Board. We're looking for diverse perspectives from across all islands, The feedback we receive from our advisory board helps us shape programming, events, outreach, and the future of HPR. Apply by June 30th at hawaiipublicradio.org. In today's Backyard Quiz, we toured the history of the National Statuary Hall collection in Washington, D.C., also known as the Old Hall of the House. In 1864, Congress passed an act allowing each state to contribute two statues of prominent state residents for the newly established exhibition space. However, by 1933, the hall's structural integrity was jeopardized by the weight of all the overcrowded statues on display. Congress then passed a resolution to reconfigure the space. Only one statue from each state would be placed in the hall. The others would be relocated somewhere else in the Capitol. So in 1976, 38 statues arranged according to height and material remained. Statues from 10 of the original, uh, 13 original colonies were moved to the Central Hall on the Capitol's first floor, and all others were distributed throughout the building, mainly in the Hall of Colum- Columns. And that is where you'll find Father Damien. In order to see King Kamehameha I, you will need to trek down to the Capitol's Visitor Center. And congrats to our winner who got those answers right, Patty from Oahu. First time. Uh, Backyard quiz winner. That is today's quiz. If you have uh, an idea for one, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org.
a new book out, Spotlights Hawaii Statuary History. Reflections in Stone and Bronze is the title of a field guide to statues across the state. Author Cheryl Soon saw the void in our Hawaii and set out to understand the marker's place in our community. The book tries to give context to the works of art at a time when our statues are being removed in places across the country. I was quite interested in what was happening nationwide in the Confederate statues, the controversies and how the community was responding. As a city planner, I thought that this is part of placemaking, it's part of history. And then the logical thing was, how did our community locate the statues that it did and and why are they there? But as I got into kind of more of the sociology of it, I realized that the statues actually reveal a lot about the community and its history and its culture, and that that changes over time, and that while a person putting up a statue, you know, thinks that they're telling a story, others over time start reinterpreting, in some cases, that story, and it's all relevant. And so it seemed as if this was a way of capturing to research some of the original intentions and the stories that people were trying to tell. You can tell more in a book than you can in just a statue. The statue sometimes only has its base and all it has is the name. In other cases, it has a little bit more. But that's really why I decided that this was interesting to me. It would probably be interesting to a lot of other people, but my audience was people from Hawaii who go by these every day and, and maybe might say, oh, not what that's all about. I guess let's talk about some of the first uh, statues or structures, okay. markers, I guess you might call them, mm-hmm. uh, that you start the book with. And you start in Waikiki, and, and these are the, the, the healing stones, you know, of uh, yes. locations where our EV are located. The 1990s was an intense period of time when a lot of reflection was taking place in the public and private sectors as to who we are and who who are we representing ourselves when it came to visitors and, you know, what were the historical markers and, and were they being respectfully treated. So there was an attempt to take the healing stones in Waikiki and, and give them a better placement and, and better protection so that people didn't pull their wet towels on it or something. And then same thing with the Eevee and the making of a mound just outside of the zoo because the sidewalk was going to be widened and the road was going to be, Kalakaua Avenue was going to be narrowed. And they knew in the course of that that they would find burial. Every time they'd worked in Waikiki, they'd found burial. So they worked with the lineal descendant families as to what would be the most respectful way of treating those. So again, it, it's, a, it's starting to feel better about our history by properly and respectfully treating the features that are located in these places. But if you want to start with statues, you have to start with Kamehameha. And, of course, that's important. Right now, we have Kamehameha Day coming up. There is an annual event where the draping of the statues is done, and the lays can be 20 feet long. They are walked in by the Hawaiian societies. They are draped over the statue by the fire department, and it's a very impressive and important statue ceremony. That takes place in Honolulu, it takes place in Hilo, it takes place in Kohala, and it takes place in the U.S. Capitol, the four places where the Kamehameha statue is located. The Kamehameha statue is the first Western statue that Hawaii ever had. It was erected in 1884. It had been commissioned a few years earlier by King Kalakaua for the 100th anniversary of the arrival of Cook, but it was not um, actually erected for a few years because the statue was shipped over and it was lost at sea. So it had to be remade and actually the first statue that had been lost at sea was found and returned to Hawaii. So at that point in time, we now had two statues. And a decision was made that the first one, the one that had been lost at sea, would go to Kohala, which is the birthplace of Kamehameha. The second one would be erected in Honolulu. That happened to coincide 
with the coronation of King Kalakaua. But it actually, the first intention for it was to be erected several years earlier in recognition of the arrival of Cook. The statue itself was modeled after the Augustus Caesar statue in Prima Porta, Italy. So it was a very significant statue in its time. Coincidentally, it's very close to the years in which the Statue of Liberty was being erected in the United States. But for Hawaii, up to that point, Hawaiians had never erected statues. So this was the very first one. And in fact, it was the only one for several years before another one was erected, in part because of the logistical challenges, I think, at the time. But the next one was the McKinley statue in 1911, and then the Abraham Lincoln statue in 1944. So over a 50-year period, we really only had the three statues being erected. That's interesting. And so you have a section on royal statues. Uh, you have one yeah. on religious and spiritual, you know, statues, you know, which includes, you know, Father Damien, which is there at the, at the state capitol. At the capitol, a very significant statue, yes. You know, you also have uh, statues honoring national and international figures, including yeah. uh, Syngman Rhee, the president of uh, Korea, who I just mm-hmm. found out um, lived on my street. <laughs> oh, I didn't. Well, I don't know what street you're on, but yeah. that is interesting. And I think that's the kind of thing that people will be able to start enjoying, that they can relate to it. Oh, this statue at the church I go to or the school I go to, they can start identifying with these statues in a very different way. Perhaps it's because they share an ethnicity or because they share a characteristic of believing in liberty or something like that. But it's kind of fun to find your own personal associations with these. I think this can be a fun teaching tool for schools, for classrooms. I think it can be a fun teaching tool for families to go out and, you know, explore one or two of them on a Sunday afternoon. Maybe we'd have a picnic there. But I think it's an activity that can really broaden a person's perspective about the place where they live. I can see, you know, field trips for school kids. Oh, absolutely. You have, of course, the Duke Kahanamoku statue in Waikiki, and, you know, that's yeah. a big deal because, you know, of what he did for that sport and uh, and the fact that we have a gold medal at the, at the Olympics. I'll tell you a funny story about the Duke Kahanamoku statue. It was actually a, a competition to decide who would get to do it. It was awarded to Jan Fisher, who was a BYU professor who did many other important statues like Princess Kailani and Robert Wilcox. But when it arrived, his widow went up to the statue and said, the swimming trunks are wrong. They are too long. She drew a line and she said, this is how short he wore his shorts. And so the artist adjusted the sculpture to be what she thought was the correct way. <laughs> it is also the statue in Hawaii that has the no, most number of selfies taken. Ah, uh, I can believe that. Yeah. You have then this, this this lovely book that you hope will help people to learn and appreciate more of our history here. Uh, I don't know, a- anything that you were struck by as you were doing your research and putting this all together? I think that the breadth of subject matters impressed me and that how relatable they would be to everyone in Hawaii. Maybe not every single one of them, but certainly many of them they could relate to. I don't think very many people know that we have a statue of Abraham Lincoln, and it's not at Lincoln School, it's at Ever Elementary School. But the statue of Lincoln, which again is one of our older statues, it was built in 1944, and it was a legacy of the principal at the time who was a single woman, and she left her entire estate, $8,000, to erect a statue because she was a big fan of Lincoln. Well, even then, it wasn't enough time to create the statue, and many people turned down the commission. But Avard Fairbanks, who has done a large number of Lincoln, said he would consider it an honor. He decided that the typical statue of Lincoln would not fit in Hawaii, you know, the stovepipe hat and and the long tailcoat sort of a, a statue. And so that statue is the 
pose of Lincoln in the as the frontiersman. And the children there at Ever Elementary love that statue. Every year they have an assembly on his birthday, February 12th, and they write poems and essays and drawings about Lincoln and what an important figure he was, which would have been exactly what that principal, Catherine Burke, would have wanted. Oh, that's a neat story, a really neat story. And one of the newer statues is that of uh, Patsy Mink. We are marking the anniversary of Title IX, and so that Correct. that statue there in front of the library is certainly significant. And, and I was fortunate enough to interview the sculptor, and you have a section in your book where you talk to the artists who created these yes. statues. That artist was, was Holly Young. She lives on the Big Island, and um, she also did the statue of Kapiolani down in Kapiolani Park. And in my chapter about the artists, I was fortunate enough to be able to interview all the living artists. I was able to have a chapter where we talk about the artists and their work. I hope as many people as possible become aware of the book. We are doing a tour of some of the statues with the Historic Hawaii Foundation and and other people who are seeing the possibilities of understanding these things are starting to see how they can use the book and its information in, in this and what interests them. That was Cheryl Soon talking about her new book, Reflections in Stone and Bronze, published by Mutual. And mark your calendars, that Historic Hawaii Foundation's walking tour of statues in the downtown area is set for July 16th. That is it for today. We are off tomorrow for the King Kamehameha Day holiday, uh, but you can still tune in at 11 for a special program from Intelligence Squared. Uh, They'll be discussing whether electric vehicles really help the planet. You can still give us some feedback, call our talk back line, email us, or connect via Facebook, too. Listen to past shows and interviews on the conversation page over our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Our program is produced by Savannah Harriman-Pope, Russell Subiono, and Lillian Song. Mahalo to John DeMello for the Backyard Quiz intro and Gypsy 808 for our theme music. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow or join us Monday and pick up the conversation. Mm-hmm.